Welcome back to the Pregnish Podcast, where we are focusing on what infertility looks like during this last day of National Infertility Awareness Week and covering stories so often left out of the storytelling of infertility. Today's episode is in honor of Resolve's National Infertility Awareness Week 2023 and our Infertility Looks Like campaign at Pregnanish to show how many people are impacted by the disease. While NIAW ends today, our work and Resolve's great work certainly does not end. Please be sure to follow us online at Pregnanish and visit resolve.org to find out how you can get involved. When model and wellness coach Tessa Neek met retired NHL hockey star Sheldon Saray in treatment to get sober in January 2017, she never imagined the two would later fall in love and marry. They were good friends and shared life's most vulnerable moments as they tried to get sober. But months later, when they reconnected through a text message, Tess admitted she knew something had changed between them. After that, the two fell in love had a fairy tale wedding in one of their favorite spots in Idaho, and were excited to start a family together. What she never imagined was that in her 20s, she'd struggle to conceive, and how miscarriage, IVF, and infertility would be one of the most sobering experiences Tess and Sheldon would share together. After my miscarriage, where I was really struggling and things got really dark, and that was when we were like, I need to share this because I felt like there was a gray cloud following me everywhere. And it was just so dark and so heavy. And I felt like I couldn't breathe. And that was two months in. So for two months, I sat like this. And I was like, babe, I can't do this. Like, I need to share this. Like, my heart is telling me I need to share what happened. And so this is always funny where people are like, I thought IVF would work the first time, right? There's so much science involved. Like, you think it's foolproof. Again, you're young. Like, it's going to work. and It'll be fine. But it was until it wasn't. This episode is about finding love in the face of challenges, why others should never judge a book by its healthy cover, and what Tess and Sheldon dream of as they look towards their future. Thank you for being on the Pregnish Podcast, Tess. I've known you for so long now, and we finally have the chance to be face-to-face and just get real, real talk about fertility. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you for having me. Do you remember when you first found us? Because I remember coming across your profile and feeling like, again, you kick in the face what infertility looks like. You're in your 20s, right? Even now, you're in your 20s. Yeah, I'm 29. Yep, 25. And we started this whole thing out. It's amazing. And how do you feel when the media consistently tells that story of the older career woman who waited too long to start her family? And that's what infertility is. Do you notice that that's a lot of the storytelling of IVF? I definitely think that's the narrative of infertility, but I think there is really truly no face. I think it's way more apparent than we think. I think just recently people have started talking about it and, you know, shine their light and shared their stories, which has helped destigmatize the whole thing. I don't really think this is what infertility looks like because it's everything. I would say more people I know than more people I don't know have dealt with something in that capacity. Yeah, and I do find that when we start talking about it, we always hear from someone who knows someone or went through it. So again, I just keep underscoring that it's a silent epidemic in a way. But 
Before we, and anyone who listens to our podcast knows, one of my favorite things to do with guests is actually not start with infertility because we're so much more than our diagnosis, even though it can feel so all-consuming and like who we are at times. But, you know, Tess, I relate to you, first of all, just as someone whose dad's from Europe. You know, growing up, I had European lunches. I went to camp in Switzerland. And so I've read a little bit about your background, but tell me more about you. Who are you? Yes, that's so funny. I am first-generation American. Both my parents are from Germany. My entire family is German. We did 23andMe. I'm like 100% European, you know, (laughs) which is just so funny. But I grew up in California, so I'm kind of a mix between like California girl with like European background. So it's been a really fun combination. In a way, I feel I extra relate to you because I'm the Canadian, I'm the first-generation Canadian with the European upbringing, totally Eastern Euro in my case. My dad's from Budapest. Canadians and Californians actually, and you know from Sheldon, we share some things in terms of just being kind of chill and like, I don't know, we like nature. If I'm going to generalize here, that's probably what these two places share. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. More than people who grew up where I am now. So Tell me about the moment, speaking of Sheldon as the fellow countryman, I'm Canadian as well originally. Tell me about the moment you met and when that point was when you knew it was more than a friendship. But take us back to even the beginning of you guys. We met in treatment in January 2017, but we were just friends. We were at treatment at the same time. You become friends with the people who are there. You hear their stories. And then about six or seven months later, we reconnected during a series of events. I had a friend pass away from a fentanyl overdose. And so he reached out and sent his condolences. And we just kind of started speaking from there. But I think meeting someone in recovery is a very interesting way to get to know someone because it's like there's no skeletons in the closet. It's very vulnerable. It's very open. It's very honest. And so that's like, I think one of the biggest blessings of our relationship is having that foundation of emotional vulnerability, which I think has really helped us to where we are today. Absolutely. I think in a way, the the beginning, you went in reverse because so much of dating is putting your best face forward and like not revealing any blemishes early. I, I used to joke, you know, I've written dating and relationship advice for years. I used to say to my audience or my readers, the first six months of dating, everyone's lying. They just don't know they're lying. <laughs> That's so funny. Because what we're doing, it's like lying by omission, right? We're just showing up in a certain way, ironically, with the topic of pregnancy, to procreate. That's really what nature is trying to get us to do when we don't see the blemishes in each other to say, oh, this could be a suitable mate uh, to procreate. But in this case, you guys went in reverse. And that's so beautiful, actually, because you saw each other as human, as flawed humans who needed help, who went proactively to get help, which shows strength of your character and vulnerability. You can't have intimacy without vulnerability. So I love that. I think it's amazing. When Sheldon sent you that text message to express his condolences, what felt different when you reconnected after just starting as friends in treatment? When did you know? What did you feel? When we reconnected, there was a space and the opportunity to be able to get to know each other on a deeper level. I had been previously in a relationship, as was he. And so, you know, fast forward nine months, we were both from the ability to have those conversations But it didn't happen like with that intention. We were friends and 
we started supporting each other in our recovery and it was very organic. And so that I'm really grateful for. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because I think in general, no matter what, if you didn't end up having the romantic spark or pursuing this, you guys just sound like you had so much respect for each other, which is going to be the best foundation for love and relationships in the future of navigating hard things, right? So we're going to get into that. You know, what's so interesting about our series, and Tess, you and I were talking offline about it a little bit, infertility looks like, and you're right, it totally doesn't look like anything. It looks like everything. It doesn't look like any one thing. But I think so often when someone looks at a young, fit, healthy body, yours and Sheldon, for that matter, he's a, an athlete, you are a model. You're a wellness coach. I think you have a degree in nutrition, I read. Is that right? Yeah. So I think that also turns on its head when people say, oh, just like eat a, an apple, you'll get pregnant. Well, I'm, I'm exaggerating. People don't say exactly that. But they give us this kind of advice on how to conceive when we have a medical diagnosis. And it's for someone like you, you are the the model, literally and figuratively, of good health. Thank you. So how do you reconcile that your body in one way really works for you and literally you work because of the strength and beauty of your body? And then on the other side, it's been hard for you, which we're going to get into. I mean, it's so interesting, right? Because the foundation of this all for me is sobriety. So I had been sober for almost six years. I haven't had a drink. I don't smoke. I haven't had any external substances or mind-altering substances so for me, like my body has never been more clean, more pure. Like I have, you know, one, maybe two cups of coffee a day. So I feel the best I've ever felt in my own skin. And that is due 100% to sobriety. My body has changed completely, the composition of it. I'm obviously getting so much more work now. My skin is clear. My nails are healthy. I, I can feel my body, how healthy it is. So I thought in theory that this would be, you know, easy. But I also think it's important to preface that at the beginning of our relationship, we weren't like, I need to have kids today. Like, this is our thing. It was a very organic process of, you know, me being on birth control. And then two years later, us being like, well, I got off birth control, but I'm not pregnant. So something was wrong. You know, at the time I was probably 26, 27, like, in theory, it should work within two years, right? Mm, much faster at that age. Yeah. You would think it was like, right, those people that are like, I blinked and got pregnant. And so I was like, oh, I'm so young. And also, I think it's very important to note is that my husband has two kids from his previous marriage. So there are two beautiful daughters. They're 18 and 15 now. And they've been involved in our journey. And it's very cute to see their reactions to everything and, and how they support us through the process. From our standpoint, he's golden, right? Because he has two beautiful, healthy children. And here I am at 28 and it wasn't working. And the fact that I'd never felt more healthy in my own skin because of the lifestyle, lifestyle choices I was making was making it even more confusing for me because I'm like, well, we're both sober. We don't drink alcohol. We're healthy. We work out. You know, we live a very active and healthy lifestyle. Like, well, where's the disconnect in all this? So hard. And so many can relate to that who aren't in a career that necessarily relies on the strength of their bodies, but also say, I, I remember one of our essays on pregnant-ish, someone said, and even Camille Guadier, our past podcast guest, said doctors and others would say, but you're so young. How could you have old eggs? Or how could you? Well, yeah, those things don't always go together. And I am someone with a hormone imbalance. I have too much estrogen. Estrogen can be great for the hair, the nails, the skin. 
not great when you have too much of it when you're trying to make a baby. So a lot of these things are what people just don't realize and what we're doing at Pregnation Test, what you're doing with your voice, which I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you sharing because what we're doing is normalizing something that someone listening is going to hear and realize they're not as alone and as much of a freak of nature when it feels like everybody is getting pregnant when they want to, right? Everyone around us decides when, when they're going to have a baby. So when did you guys discuss your future goals? Of course, Shell has two great daughters, but when did you know you wanted to try for a baby? Was that a conscious conversation after getting off birth control pill? It definitely was a conscious conversation when we went to the fertility clinic, because after two years, I told him that something is wrong. So we're having the conversation of kids and maybe expanding our family and thinking about how that would look like. But my head was like, well, what if I can't have kids? Then we're just, you know, this is just wasted words. So I'm like, I would like to go to the fertility clinic and get all these tests done. So at least we can know what the problem is. Because right now we're just like, it's, you're talking in circles if you don't know, right? And so I wanted to get that information. And so this, to me, what I dictate as like the start of our fertility journey would be January 2020, which is like right before the world shut down pre-COVID. Oh my gosh. Which is a whole other wrench into the, you know, fertility plan. So we went and we got all of our levels checked and, you know, all that paperwork and those tests take a while. And we were starting to put the pieces together for why things were looking a certain way. I remember what Camille said on her podcast when I was listening to it. She's like, the insides don't match the outside. Well, I'm 28 years old and my AMH is 1.4. That's like someone 35 to 38. So that is older for me. And so even though this process has been so grueling, I could have a lot of compassion that it started. Like, thank God we had these conversations when I was 24, 25, right? Exactly. If I was like 35, it would have been maybe a different trajectory for that. That's so true. So to me, when we started that first, you know, sit down at the fertility clinic where they basically told us our only option was IBS. It was never like IUI. It was never triclovid or like it was just like IVF's your option. And so at that point, we kind of took, we, you know, like they say, like, take the 90 days, take your vitamins and, you know, get your CoQ10 and then like get your healthy living going. And then COVID hit in March. So when the world shut down, it's like, OK, well, this you can't even get elective surgeries. You can't do anything like we're just going to focus on living our life and, you know, that kind of element. And so at that point, it wasn't the forefront because it wasn't available to be the forefront. We were spending time and traveling. And I think it's also important for us, like our IVF journey has been very spread out over the course of five years. We got engaged, we got married, we, you know, we travel in the summer. Like it hasn't been just back to back to back, mainly because it's, I think it's so hard mentally to do that. Like I need the breaks from like the hormones, the shots, your cycles being normal after like it's a lot. And so I have so much sympathy and compassion for women who go through this because any woman who goes through this experience so deserves to be a mother, you know? 100%. I think, and we were talking offline and I've said what you said, Tess, when we were talking offline about the medal that we all deserve. I mean, it's in general, like it's not merit-based and that's what's so frustrating. I joke, I'm an ovary achiever, but we are overachievers. We are doing everything in our lives to make stuff happen. And then this one thing, not only are trying to make it happen, you do everything to make it happen. And then people, you know, some people are 
on the substances you used to maybe be on or not eating healthy as you do, not taking their vitamins, not watching their fitness. And they, some of the time, don't have any fertility issues. So it's not to say those things don't matter. We all want to live a healthy life and that will bring more good stuff to us. But I think that that is a really hard thing for this community to understand how you could work so hard and still it doesn't happen. So when you guys started the IVF process, I know you've spoken so beautifully about how you and Shell have like navigated this and brought you closer and how he's been a rock for you. A lot of times couples hit roadblocks and bumps during this because of the stress of it. But I think the undertold story, which we tell a lot of pregnant, is just how it also illuminates the strength of relationships, not just what doesn't work, but what does. So tell me about that. Totally. I think it's interesting because it's almost like IVF, much like sobriety, it's its own language. Like if you're in it, you get it. If you're trying to explain it to someone who's not in it, they're like, what? Like shots, like menopure, I don't get it, right? Like they're just, it's a different language. And so I think there was definitely a learning curve. We've done three retrievals and each one has gotten so much better. I don't know if it's like time or like understanding or knowledge or like no more needle phobia. Like the first time it was like, we had planned a trip to Mexico for Valentine's Day and like two days after my retrieval. Like that's how little I knew that that was going to happen because you can't do that. You can't go swimming. You're not comfortable. And so that's how little I knew about the whole thing. I had like all these plans in my calendar. I had full schedules. I was still doing work and shoots. And like I bloated so badly. My first time I actually had OHSS after my egg retrieval. So I was like out for a while. For those who don't know what OHSS is, no, it's okay. I know I speak these acronym languages, but what is that? It's basically like when you're overstimulated (laughs) with your medication. So they put me on a really high dose and I felt like a chicken. Like I looked nine months pregnant. I was crying pain and I had never done in any of my surgeries. I always do no painkillers, no Xanax, no Ben, like nothing like that. And so like, I'm just on the Tylenol or Advil that they give me and like, that's it. So that first experience is such a learning curve. And even with Sheldon, he didn't know how to support me. He didn't know what that looked like. He didn't know like what the shots wanted it. Like it's a whole new thing you learn. And then the second one, he understood like, don't take things personally that I say this month, right? Like, let's just, he suited up and showed up for me. And he started to, he really understood like, this is how I can support her during this time. And then this last one was the easiest one I had by far. It was, we're doing this. We got this. Let's go. And I've learned to do my shots myself at this time. Like we used to take the pressure off the situations, right? I'm like, if he is at work and then he's like, I need to do the shot and he's running late. And I'm like, the timing, is it going to mess up anything? Right? Like two minutes is not going to change the world. But I have learned, we both learned ways that how we can make the situation better. And I think this last one was like, as good as it's going to get, like it was be almost perfect for us. And so like part of it is trial and error. Part of it is learning, you know, the learning curve because it is such a different thing. And unless you're in it, you don't understand it. Tessanique at just 29 years old certainly shows that infertility looks like a lot of people left out of the storytelling, including people that are young, healthy, and fit. In fact, Tess has built a career on this. Infertility does not discriminate. It doesn't care about your age, race, gender, sexual orientation, or how hard you try when you try to conceive. And at Pregnantish, we are dedicated to elevating the conversation of this disease through storytelling, through community, 
and advocacy. For more, follow us on social media at Pregnantish and Pregnantish Mag on Twitter and find us at Pregnantish.com. And now back to our episode with Tess and how she navigated her struggle to conceive with her husband, Sheldon. If Sheldon were here, but maybe you could guess, I would ask, how is it similar, this journey you're on, to a game that he plays? Like, what would you guess there with his role as a defenseman? That's so funny that you say this, because we've talked about this. We always, I always kind of put things back into, like, hockey terms, right? Because, like, when you're a hockey player, you have, you might not, but you would have your nutritionist, you'd have your training coach, you'd have your off-seat coach, you'd have your, like, rehab guy. You have a group of people around you that support you in being the best. That's the same in my infertility journey. I have like an acupuncturist that I've been with for four years who specializes just in fertility treatments. I absolutely love her. I have a fertility therapist that I talk to that I'm able to bounce things off, which was so important after my miscarriage, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit. I also was seeing my own like nutritionist and trying to figure out what are the best ways to eat. So you have all these people supporting you so you can help because you can't just put it on your spouse. That's not fair. And you need the support from other people who are experts in their specific field and can help you to the best ways that you might need it. Oh, I love that. I think that's so true. Your team. No one, you know, in the traditional sense, you make a baby with two people. In, in the world of IVF, you not only have your lab staff, your embryologist, billing, the nurse, your doctor, then you have that extra layer of support community. I'm so glad, Tess, that you have that in your lives because I think that it takes people so long to realize they need it because you don't know what you don't know, right? So when you set out on this journey, just like you're saying that you booked something two days later, I was hosting a show years ago for Oprah Canada, actually. I did a photo shoot for the promo of the show Wearing a red dress, I swear I look six months pregnant. I can't even look at the picture today. I'll try to share it one day on Pregnantish. I was sucking in my stomach because my fibroids and my endo and everything create, and I was doing IVF, create like pregnant-ish. My body was pregnant-ish. Legitimately. Legitimately. And we have all the fun of hormones without the benefit of what we know, you know, is inside of us. So I think like, yeah, it is a marathon, but yeah, let's talk about the miscarriage because I'm so sorry that you had to experience something so devastating, but tell me about what happened. Thank you for that. So I actually hadn't openly talked about my fertility journey. That was something that we had kept private between us and our close friends. And then it was after my miscarriage where I was really struggling and things got really dark. And that was when we were like, I need to share this because I felt like there was a gray cloud following me everywhere. And it was just so dark and so heavy. And I felt like I couldn't breathe. And that was two months in. So for two months, I sat like this. And I was like, babe, I can't do this. Like, I need to share this. Like, my heart is telling me I need to share what happened. And so this is always funny where people are like, I thought IVF would work the first time, right? There's so much science involved. Like, you think it's foolproof. Again, you're young. Like, it's going to work. It'll be fine. But it was until it wasn't. So basically, we had a PGT embryo that we had transferred. I was doing the estrogen, the progesterone, and oil shots, which is like the standard hormone protocol when you do a transfer. And the transfer went smoothly. I think it was the day before my five-year sobriety birthday that we learned I was pregnant, October 12th. And then 
as time went on, you go in, you have a lot of appointments when you're doing a transfer. So I had a six week, I had a seven week, and then I had a 10 week. I think it was maybe eight. So I went on the first appointment. Everything was amazing. I went into the second appointment and we saw the heartbeat, which we were super excited about. I still remember 130 beats per minute. And then we went to, I think, week 10. And that's where it's like, it was the movies, right? It's like, no one's talking. I'm looking around, looking at my husband, and it just gets really quiet. Instantly when that happened, I knew there was a problem. This was over right before American Thanksgiving. So it's like end of November. And it was basically, I had to wait a week. And because we were 10 weeks along, like nine weeks, four days, they suggested that I do a DNC. But it's ironic that you're in a fertility clinic. You're like, right, I've never been pregnant in my life before. And this is how it's ending for this chapter. And so that was really heartbreaking because it was over Thanksgiving. So I had to wait 10 days to be able to be seen by the doctor to do this. So like that 10 days was so horrible for me and so dark. And right then everything, you have all like the false narratives going through your head. Like, why is this happening to me? I'm never going to be a mom. Is this ever going to happen? Like what went wrong? And so from my understanding at 10 weeks, a PGT embryo is likely to miscarry like 1.6%. And for those who don't know, a PGT means that you've done genetic testing to evaluate the health of the embryo and PGTA embryos that are deemed healthy have a really high success rate of implantation and live birth success. Correct. So they said within my age range, it was about a 76% chance for a live birth with those statistics. And what I learned and what was explained to me, I think in a very interesting way, is that sometimes we're thought that PGT testing is like the end all be all, but it's really not. I think something really powerful that I learned was that if PGT in the embryo, it's like a library. It shows you that like all of the wings are there and it doesn't tell you anything about like the books in the library or what order or what condition they are, like the genes. They can't tell you if there's pages missing or a cover is torn. It just tells you that all of them are there. And so for the longest time, we thought that this was regarding the embryo, like maybe there was something we didn't know, right? We have all this testing and all this information that we are accustomed to that we can get, but is there something else? And so we tested the products of conception, which I absolutely hate that term, but everything came back normal, right? And I started doing all these tests and everything came back normal. And so at that point, you're like, you know, the doctors are like, well, you know, bad luck. Maybe it's just the next one we'll have to see, which is so interesting and frustrating because again, when it comes to like wanting to control, IVF is like the only thing I found in sobriety that affects every facet of your life. It affects your finances, your relationships, your scheduling of your events, you know, it affects everything. And so that's been really difficult to try to figure out this because in theory on pen and paper, everything should have worked. So what is the thing that we're missing that's not working? And so that's when I started to dive deeper and try to find out a lot of questions. And I'm a German type A Virgo and I have a lot of questions. I'm going to find the answer and not like in an overzealous, like egotistical way. I have a great desire to figure out why this went wrong. And I knew in my heart there was something more than just, sorry, it didn't work. I knew there was more to be revealed. And so that's kind of when I started going and asking to a lot of amazing doctors and asking a lot of questions to see like, what else could we try to look at to see why this may have happened? Good for you. I have to say that I wish more people and those listening, that is such a powerful story and message because it's not a good enough answer. The truth is a lot of times unexplained infertility 
the doctors are as frustrated as we are that something didn't work when they thought it would. Everything lined up. So they're frustrated, too. But one of our audience members once corrected the term and said, it's not unexplained, it's unexplored. And what else do I need to ask? And how do I advocate for myself, right? I absolutely love that. Yes. And that's powerful. And by the way, we do a lot of work with providers as well. And good doctors want to be asked questions, want to be a partner in treatment, want to work with you to get to the bottom of this because they have the same dream as you do. They're in this literally making the baby with us. They want the positive result, not just for their stats. Like truly they want that. That's why they're in this field. And so when we can be a partner, come with educated questions investigation, curiosity. That's wonderful. So did you hear anything else? Did you learn anything else as you did that? So when I went through this process, everything came back normal from the test that I had done. And so it was still like a question mark. And it had come to my attention by one of my friends that maybe it was like an autoimmune thing that I didn't know I had. Like maybe I had something, but didn't have it, you know? And so I had heard about this test. I'm like, do I need this? I've done a lot of tests. And the tests that I had done after my DNC all came back negative. So negative for like antiphospholipid syndrome, negative for all the things that they were looking for. So again, I was stumped. But then I was like, I'm just going to do this. And I'm just going to, you know, maybe I'll learn something that I don't know. The worst case is everything comes back perfect and I'm healthy. So if that's the worst case, I'll take it. I ended up doing this test. And also with IVF, there are so many blood draws. Like if you need 10 vials of blood for me, no problem. You know, like you get so used to it. If I just have to take more labs, no problem. It's an easy solution and might give us a big answer. And so when I was doing it, it's a very cool test. It takes your blood, it takes your husband's blood, and it's about 200 different tests, three or four different lab draws between fasting and non-fasting. And it gives you a comprehensive report based on all these different autoimmune conditions and how your body reacts. And I just hope I'm explaining this the right way. I'm glad you're explaining it because our audience constantly asks about immunology and not all doctors believe in it. And some do and some don't. And I know Dr. Vidali's team definitely believes in it. What did you learn? Like, what else did you learn as it came back? So on this test, interestingly enough, I came back positive for antiphospholipid syndrome. And I came back positive for another gene. Actually, it's interesting because it comes from the PAI. It comes from Western Europe a lot. And that's what I was on my consult. That was what was told me. And so basically, I have these blood clots and I'm unable to dissolve these blood clots. And so it's a blessing in disguise. I found out this information because it also the test gives you these recommendations based on, you know, the very scientific answers. And so what was recommended for me going forward is to be on Lovenox for a duration of pregnancy. And so just knowing this information and that a lot of blood clot disorders are the reason for miscarriages between eight and 10 weeks is something to me like maybe this is the missing piece. And I'm absolutely not a doctor. I'm not like trying to facilitate this. But in a game of IVF, I think a lot of it is an educated throw things at the wall and see what sticks. I totally agree with you. And it's a team effort with some of the most brilliant minds in the space. And I think everyone's goal at the end of the day is to bring home a healthy baby. I don't know one person who's like, that's not like that is the goal. And when I find out this information, maybe that's the difference. We haven't attempted another transfer. We're still waiting on more things. As you know, IVF is a lot of like, hurry up and wait for the next test, hurry up and wait for the results. So it's a journey. And it's like, a, you're just having to be really like patient throughout the process. And so I'm really grateful for that test because it told me something I didn't know. And so 
to find that kind of information is really helpful, especially when it could be the difference breaker between it. Totally agree. I think also it's not going to hurt you to have this information. It can only help you. These discoveries are comforting when we get them because we have one more thing to try. I've often said, and I don't know if you've heard me say I'm pregnantish, I've often said that year five or six was easier on me than year one or two because a whole world of things opened for me that I didn't see in the first year when I thought IUI made baby or IVF made baby. <laughs> New things is power. Information is power. So when you were in your lowest part of the miscarriage, how did you and Sheldon navigate that together and separately? That's so interesting. And this is a beautiful question because, you know, when people are like relationships are supposed to be 50-50. In theory, yes, but oftentimes, no. Like a lot of times relationships are like 80-20. Some days they're 50-50. Sometimes they're 90-10. After this experience, this was 99.999% my husband and me 0.0001. Because there were days like I didn't leave bed. I was so struck with grief, but also like my sobriety has been very good to me. Where like before I was sober, I had, you know, I went through really difficult things. But when I got sober, I hadn't dealt with that level of like pain and anguish. And only somebody who's been through it knows what that feels like. And so that's why I can have so much compassion and so much grace and so much empathy for women that have dealt with miscarriage, loss, and struggling in their fertility. Because it's like, it's a small group of people and no one wishes they were ever in this group. You don't wake up being like, I really want to experience this. No one wants to be part of this club. But I think it's so important as women that we support ourselves and each other in this space because any woman who's in this so deserves to have the family that they've always dreamed of. With that said, when I was going through this, I wasn't speaking about it publicly. So I didn't have that community to hold on to. So I was really relying on my husband. And when I say like he showed up and he suited up for me in every way, shape or form that he knew how he did, which I think is so special. I think because we had that foundation of recovery and sobriety and really like having emotional intimacy, we were able to get through this and like we're still going through it. What I've learned about grief is like it's not like, a OK, I'm healed. It's like you consistently move through it. And you're never going to be fully healed. Like grief hits you in different ways. You know, sometimes you're fine for four days, and then sometimes something hits you, or sometimes you get reminded of something. And so it is a bit of a roller coaster. But my husband showed up in every single way that he knew how. And he like fully, not even showed up, but he really, really like, I can't even explain and put into words, but he was there for me in ways that I didn't even know he was capable of. That's incredible. Is the research, and I've shared it before, but for those who haven't heard me say it, the research does show that couples do not break up over IVF miscarriage in these terrible grief moments. And if they do break up after that, chances are another life challenge that would have come their way would have split them up. So it's not because of those things that they broke up. It's just one more part of the difficult side of life that we have to navigate as a team and how do we show up together in that you guys are two for two right now with sobriety and with miscarriage, showing the strength and beauty of your bond. It's beautiful. It, and it's actually so wonderful to hear because I think as parents, when you get there, what a great team you guys are. Like this is just setting you guys up for success. What do you wish with Sheldon for the future as you look towards your future? Oh, that's such a cute question. I think he's an amazing dad. I think when he 
had his children. He was very young. He was like 26 and 29 and he was actively playing. So I know he missed a lot of his kids' childhood as they were young growing up because a hockey schedule is grueling, honestly. It's like 80 games a year on the road. You know, you're playing on Christmas, any type of sport. And you talk to a lot of athletes, like it's a demanding schedule. And so I'm really excited for him to experience it with the ability to stay home more because he does travel now still for work, but it's in a different capacity and it's definitely not 80 games a year. And so I'm excited for him to be present and see some of the things that he missed. I'm also excited to experience seeing his daughters with him and their interaction because it was so cute when we told them the news and how they reacted and how supportive they were. So I'm excited. They're going to be great, you know, big sisters. I'm excited to see the family dynamic and bringing in a little baby in the future. Well, that's a beautiful image. My biggest wish for you is that it just gets easier from here and you welcome this beautiful baby and your family is expanding. And next time I talk to you guys, well, hopefully we'll be in touch before that. But in a more formal capacity, we can hear about that side of your relationship. Tess, thanks so much for being on the Pregnantish podcast. Thank you for having me. I have really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. And where can people find you if they want to follow you and hear more? On all social media accounts, it's just at Tessanique. My husband is at Sheldon Saray 44. I speak about my infertility journey a little bit here and there. But for now, for the most part, you can find me on this Pregnantist podcast. Yes, you can. We're going to be sharing this and I so appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pregnantish, where we always have real talk about fertility and show the incredible lengths that people go to to create their families. Until next time.